0: Giving you good reasons to throw away that tinfoil hat since 1996. This is Hell. Today we'll be talking to former CIA case officer Jeffrey Sterling, who blew the whistle on the CIA for racial discrimination. Jeffrey didn't stop there. He also blew the whistle on a CIA... Operation that was supposed to undermine Iranian WMD research and instead, mistakenly revealed U.S. nuclear weapons secrets to Iran. In doing so, Jeffrey said he became the agency scapegoat for the embarrassing public revelations of the bumbling Iranian operation, despite there not being any evidence he divulged any sensitive sensitive information to anyone ever. Jeffrey has a new book all about this ordeal called. Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. And, of course, we'll wrap up this week's show, as we do most every week, with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff stands his ground... On Outer Space. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomco Smith. Alex, any plans for the weekend?
1: Yeah, hey, I'm going to prove all those haters wrong in the booth next to me who said I couldn't get high and install a cat door mm-hmm. without uh, never having used a sawzall. How how was that? I said, I'm going to prove them wrong. No, oh, you're going to. That's what you're uh, going to uh, do. Maybe they'll prove it <laughs> <They've been laughs> wrong. We'll One. see how that door is going uh, in two days.
0: How about you, Jonah? Any plans for the weekend?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, performing in the pit, uh, for my friend's, uh, musical about, uh, firefighters who become strippers tonight, so. Excuse me? <laughs> it's called Heat.
0: <laughs> and where is this being performed?
1: Uh, it's at Columbia. All it's, right,
0: man. Uh, yeah. Columbia College. You're in a play called Heat? Uh, Yeah, playing in the pit, playing
1: guitar. Oh, sweet, man. That's fantastic. Playing some tunes.
0: Congratulations, sir. Thank you. This week's question from hell, which is, what's keeping you up at night? What's keeping you up at night? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. This week's winner gets a copy of the book we already featured on this week's show, Franny Noodleman's Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind, and the U.S. Military. Alex, do we have the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell?
1: yeah what is keeping you up at night what is keeping you up at night curly b says them beans it's so dumb <laughs> angela m says not much after sondland's testimony today i don't know who that is uh, joe s says the annoyance <laughs> dennis h says walls in the apartment are thin neighborhood snores and recites ayn rand novels <laughs> it's just weird uh Braden s says the heat and the unsettling smell of bushfire smoke <laughs> chris s or chris l sorry says what's keeping me up at night is trying to find my drug hiding place it's around here somewhere and finally uh via t- via instagram dm our old pal eat farts 69 says back. he's back but just on instagram hopefully not on twitter said it's our 20 pound hopefully for you eat farts 69 not everyone else it's our 20 pound cat stomping around our heads from trying to suffocate us kitty cbd from hemp be damned we need the good stuff who's holding
0: I do like Them Beans by Curly. I also like the replies we read earlier this week. Uh, Marco saying, nothing at all. Everything is awesome since the lobotomy. Lisa responding, the ghosts of Christmas past and his effing chains again. Stevens wondering if heliocentrism was a mistake. Mark's answer, my incredible sense of balance. That's what's keeping him up at night, get it? Uh, Dan stating, it's Russia's post uh, unpost racializing America. Joshua wondering, who likes Panera? enough to want it delivered? That is something that will keep you up. Chris's rejoinder: oh, those goddamn alley cats. What with the tap dancing and the cane twirling atop a fence. I've run out of boots to throw at them. Sebastian's reaction, something between the fear of being alive during an extinction event and having to poop yet again. And Alex really liked Kelly saying, yeast infection or maybe pinworms. I am going to go with, hmm... I'm gonna go with Stevens, wondering if heliocentrism was a mistake. So, Stephen, you have won Franny Noodleman's book, Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind in the U.S. Military. My answer to this week's question from hell what's keeping you up at night? Well, sure, what's keeping me up at night is the need to pee. But what's keeping me up at night is I, I think there must be a lumberyard nearby our place because every night I hear the sawing of wood. Also, keeping me up at night is if anyone listening will get that joke who is under 75 years old. For all of you interested in what is happening Oh, and by the way, who's the winner again? Uh, Heliocentrism. Steven. Steven, just uh, send us your mailing address at Facebook. Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio uh, and we will send you the copy of Franny Noodleman's book, Fighting Sleep The War for the Mind in the U.S. Military. For all of you interested in what is happening in Bolivia, you got to go back and listen to our interview from Wednesday with independent journalist Jacqueline Kovarik, who was reporting to us from Cochabamba, Bolivia. Jacqueline posted the Nation article, Bolivia's anti-indigenous backlash is growing. The ouster of President Evo Morales has ignited the country's long-standing racism against its indigenous peoples. Jacqueline is a graduate of NYU Center on Latin American and Caribbean Studies and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute, and has studied the Andean indigenous language of Quechua since October 2015, and has been awarded four, four in language and area studies fellowships from the United States Department of Education. Sure, she's admittedly white and from the United States, but she's been visiting Bolivia for years and now lives in country. With her ability to speak an indigenous language, she was able to tell us what the indigenous people she's been speaking with have told her about what's happening on the ground in Bolivia. Her responses, her perspective was enlightening, not towing some political narrative line, but focusing on what's important to the people who are now being attacked and killed by the forces who took power in Bolivia. In other words, stuff more important than whether what happened in Bolivia was a coup or not. Sure, that's important, but What's really important right now is indigenous people are dying at the hands of the police and military. So if you haven't heard that interview yet after today's show, go to our website, thisishell.com, and listen. It will give you some new insight and will definitely help you inform your perspective on what's happening, what is really happening in Bolivia. And then yesterday on our Patreon podcast, you can still you can become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash thisishell. And you can listen to interviews that we did from 2003 to 2004 about the Bolivian gas wars, with Jim Schultz from the Democracy Center and that will give you some background on how Evo became elected president of Bolivia the kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table, This Is Hell. And if you want to get into it with that relative who is in deep denial about climate change, who believes we live in some fictional post-racial America, who acts like a misogynist white supremacist, but would never admit to being one, then get them the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, which is loaded with 25 interviews we've conducted during the 2000s. That is a fantastic way to get others introduced to This Is Hell. And for those who are already listeners of our show, a great review on how we've reported on this moment millennia, millennium, millennium, over the past 20 years. It's a great stocking stuffer, and I hated saying it's a great stocking stuffer because I'm not all that excited about the quickly approaching holidays. I have a love-hate relationship with holidays. I love the holidays in theory, but in practice, not so much. Every year since I was a kid, I get all pumped up about the coming break from work, from school, the temporary vacation from reality, having time off to do absolutely nothing and maybe, just maybe take advantage of one of the few moments during the year where we are all allowed to enjoy the quiescence that is so important to our mental well-being as described on our show earlier this week by Franny Noodleman when she talked about her book Fighting Sleep. In theory I have a deep fondness for the holidays when I imagine what they are. I am filled with the feeling of warmth uh, and reinforces the affection I have for this time of year. The memories which seem to erase all of the bad times I've had during the holidays Remind me of the few times I enjoyed my childhood and give me time to pause and reflect on those who I have shared the holidays with in the past Who are no longer with us In theory, I look forward to reconnecting with family And not only direct family But everyone in my indirect family, if you will From great nieces and nephews To cousins-in-law and everyone in between I love them all very much And they have reciprocated in kind When you are around that much love You cannot help but feel damn good And in this, within the smells of the holidays The freshly cooked meals And baked goods that create an amazing air of happiness It's, it's like no other Other time during the year for some reason. The companionship, the conversation, the cooking, everything about the holidays is absolutely fantastic in theory. In practice, the holidays never fulfill those wonderful expectations. While I may love a home filled with an aura of food being cooked, in reality, I never do any of the cooking. It's others working hard to put food on the table in front of me. Not that I don't want to cook, I'm just not that great at it, and others enjoy it so much, I don't want to ruin their fun. I end up feeling guilty for them working hard to put a meal in front of me. I feel like a sexist jamoke because I often find myself, not always but often, in a room full of men watching sports while Women do the majority of the cooking. That said, a brother in law does all the baking at one Christmas I attend every year, and a nephew cooks most everything at another Christmas. Still, I feel guilty because raised Catholic. This leads me to volunteer to do the task I hate most when it comes to food preparation. Washing dishes. I was a dishwasher at a restaurant, and I hated that job. Now I have to do the dishes all the freaking time because nobody really is all that interested in me cooking. I get it. Being legally blind and colorblind, stuff may get cooked a little bit improperly. I might mix one spice up for another without noticing it. I get it, but I'd rather be eating food, you know, bad food I made than washing everyone's disgusting scraps off their plates while trying to digest a wonderful once a year meal in practice thanksgiving is an offense to native americans and i can't get that out of my head because of this here radio show livestream podcast whatever this thing is now i can't stop thinking about the gluttony of it all the overconsumption of food while there are people not too far away who are going hungry or without a home or family suffering or suffering from loneliness And I'm not doing a damn thing about it And it doesn't get any better After Thanksgiving, the day after I have to send a list of things I want for Christmas to two different secret Santa lists As two families we share Christmas With separately, each have Organized ways to actually consume Less, spend less during the holidays Just writing down what I want Always makes me feel nauseous, like I'm begging For something that I have not earned in any way I feel bad for requesting gifts Then I feel worse when I get the list from whoever's Name I've pulled, wondering if I will get them the right thing, or worse, that everything on their list is a complete waste with huge environmental or, yes, political ramifications that make me question some relative who I otherwise truly love. Then there's the carbon footprint of going to not only one Christmas, but three, each hundreds of miles away from each other, often in small towns where taking any kind of public transportation is nearly impossible, if not completely impossible, because... Here in the States, we fund private transit more than public, unlike most other countries in the world. I'll probably talk a lot about the holidays over the next couple of weeks. I want you all to know that... Me and my girly enjoy the holidays so much we throw a private party for some friends every year, and now we have a blast with listeners during our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which is happening this year on Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs. The way I truly enjoy getting a tree every year and decorating it with my girly, with our always-growing collection of magnificently crafted ornaments, stringing the lights while getting incredibly lit ourselves, all while being completely cognizant of it all being a wasteful, wasteful reproduction of consumerism that never gives me the intensely high level of sheer joy I'd imagined or hoped. In theory, the time I spend with family and friends during the holidays is filled with love, joy, and harmony. In practice, it's exhausting. And when it's all over, I'm going to need a vacation. See even during the holidays for me this is hell whistling by the graveyard since 1996 this is hell a patriotic American serves his country and does so to the best of his abilities and acting as a true American, he believes in his rights and fights for them when they are challenged. But what happens when those rights are not being attacked by some foreign adversary, but by the government and agency you have dedicated your life to? Ending up in jail for doing what you were always told was the right thing to do. Here to tell us what happens when the country you love has convicted you of a crime you did not commit at what amounted to a show trial? Lawyer, whistleblower, and former CIA case officer Jeffrey Sterling is Author of Unwanted Spy The Persecution of an American Whistleblower Welcome to This is Hell, Jeffrey Uh,
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: I want to ask you a question that I had not thought of 10 days ago when we originally scheduled you and our power went out here. And I hope this doesn't distract from the rest of the conversation because we do not talk at all about the impeachment process. I think this is all pretty Mm -hmm. speculative at this point. We're still waiting for inquiries and investigations. But before we get to your writing, as someone who was a CIA case officer and a whistleblower, how important, in your opinion, is it to keep the anonymity of the whistleblower in the impeachment? impeachment inquiry
2: i think it's absolutely uh, crucial to uh, protect the individual's identity Um, as i think we've seen i love that the topic of whistleblowing has been to the forefront lately but as we've seen whistleblowing systems can be used to identify whistleblowers and that opens them up to retaliation and reprisal Uh, I, i haven't seen much of the um hearings because I've been traveling for my book tour. But the gist of it it that I've been getting is that the allegations by the whistleblower have been substantiated. Uh, So I don't see why there is still the push to identify the whistleblower other than to set that person up as a target.
0: Even without that kind of... Performance of trying to get the identity of the whistleblower uh, out—that you did not experience—you weren't on TV eight days a week or whatever it was back then when it was happening. Uh, how much did you feel a sense of intimidation, even without that kind of media scrutiny?
2: Um, you, you feel it all the time when you take a, a step that you know could be risky. Um, and one other point I can make about the current whistleblower of that infamous phone call. Um when I went to the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee with my you know concerns and complaints, I didn't know that I was speaking to individuals who were affiliated with the CIA, and that was a direct pipeline back to the to the agency, the the very place that I was complaining about. And that seems to have happened with this whistleblower. Um, you know the reports that I've read said the moment the person filed the complaint, uh, the White House and the Attorney General were notified or the very subjects of the complaint. So, uh, I, I, this calls into question uh, a lot of the process of protection for whistleblowers, and a lot of the things that has happened with this one. The bad side of whistleblowing also happened to me.
0: Three years ago, a group of whistleblowers, many of whom have appeared on our show, including another imprisoned CIA whistleblower, John Kiriakou, sent a letter to yeah. President Barack Obama urging an expedited report on Hillary Clinton's emails. In that letter, it states that Hillary Clinton quote willfully violated laws designed to protect classified information from unauthorized disclosure. Secretary Clinton's case invites comparison with what happened to former CIA case officer Jeffrey Sterling. That's you now serving a three a, at yeah. the time serving a three and a half year prison term for allegedly leaking information in New York Times journalist James Risen. Sterling first came to the media's attention when in 2003 he blew the whistle on a botched CIA operation called Operation Merlin, telling the Senate Intelligence Committee staff that the operation had ended up revealing nuclear secrets to Iran. When in 2006, Risen published a book that discussed the amateurish cowboy operation, the Department of Justice focused on Sterling as the suspected source. No evidence was ever produced in court demonstrating that any classified information ever passed between the two men, but Sterling, an African-American, was nevertheless convicted by an all-white jury in Virginia based on suspicion and the presumption that it had to be him. The contrast between the copious evidence, some of it self-admitted, of Secretary Clinton's demonstrable infractions on the one hand and the very sketchy circumstantial evidence used to convict and imprison Jeffrey Sterling on the other, lend weight to the suspicion that there is one law for the rich and powerful in the United States and another for the rest of us. Do you think it was... Appropriate to compare your case to Hillary Clinton's emails?
2: Uh, in a lot of ways, yes. Um, it seemed that that uh, the criminal justice system that pursued and persecuted me for a decade and a half um, was it wasn't the same system looking into any other uh, potential allegations or even those with proof. And it was really hard for me sitting in prison. And seeing that, go wow, what system is being played out in front of me? That's not the same one that put me in this place. So I, I think the the comparison is appropriate in a lot of ways, uh, as it distinguishes that there are seemingly two different uh, criminal justice systems. If you're not, if you're important, have a political uh, backing, then uh, you get the lesser. Uh, but if you are the you know, average Joe Blow American um you know that you get the hammer
0: and in your book, Unwanted Spy, you write, the sentence handed down by Judge Leon Brinkema called for me to serve 42 months in prison. It was a longer sentence than the one imposed on other cases, such as that of John Carriaka, who in 2012 had become the first former CIA officer convicted of giving classified information to a reporter. Perhaps even more egregious, just a month before my sentencing, General David Petraeus, a former CIA director, who had confessed to giving classified documents to his biographer, Paula Broadwell, who was also his longtime mistress, had been permitted to enter a plea bargain with federal prosecutors that would require not a single day in prison. Does your guilt while the investigation of Hillary's email was not pursued or the plea bargain Petraeus was offered reveal to you the different justice systems for the rich and powerful of you know compared to those who are not as well off or power? Or does it reveal more so and even more uneven distribution of justice based on race. Do you see in this more something based on class and power or something based on race or are those two things intertwined?
2: I think those two two things are definitely uh, intertwined. Um, I mean, I certainly didn't have the same uh, skin tone as uh, Hillary Clinton or Petraeus. Uh, And with my case, in my instance, again, absolutely no evidence. I mean, uh, admitted evidence by Petraeus. He lied to the FBI. You know, the situations with Hillary Clinton. There was ample evidence, but no, no pursuing uh, with the same vigor and energy as going after me, because it was easy to go after me. I mean, I was the only person investigated in my case, and I didn't look like any of my accusers.
0: When you saw that all-white jury. Did you already have a suspicion that these things,
2: this was not going to go well? Um, I did, I did. But of course, I going going to law school, um, learning about the law. I still had hope that uh, the letter of the law would be followed. Uh, but with that jury, and of course, many of them had affili- uh, affiliations, either previous experience with or uh, close family members who had security clearances. So. The deck was definitely stacked against me, but I remained hopeful uh, throughout. Well, wow. uh, And I can't imagine,
0: first of all, you're talking to the Senate committee and there's people who have direct connections to intelligence officers there. Then you're talking to a jury and there's people who have family members who might be in the intelligence community. I can't see how you could have got a fair trial in that situation. You write, as an undercover officer for the Central Intelligence Agency, I'd been involved in Operation Merlin, covert scheme to derail the Iranian effort to build a nuclear bomb by providing their scientists with fake flawed blueprints for warheads channeled through a Russian sil- si- scientist. Operation Merlin had ultimately backfired when the Iranian experts detected the fraud, as revealed in the book State of War by, again, reporter James Risen. From the beginning, what did you think about the operation? Did you think it was a good idea and could, in fact, derail Iran's nuclear research, or did you or others who you were working with all have their doubts?
2: Um, when I brought, when I was brought into the operation, and it had been longstanding uh, prior to my involvement but I was all in. I, I was uh, told about the, the purpose of the operation, uh, the assurances of the safety of the operation. And that was important to me because, again, we're talking about nuclear weapons technology. And I, I was assured that the highest levels of government um, approved this, uh, You know, given the implication that everything should be OK, everything should work the way uh, it was designed. Um, So I I, I was all in. Again, I drank the Kool-Aid on that, and I, I was very enthusiastic about the operation because as it was portrayed to me, it made sense.
0: So what was the evidence that they used, you know, what was their evidence that you had given classified information to Ryzen? And I don't want to downplay the importance of circumstantial evidence at trial, but was the evidence circumstantial? Because I have heard, and you're a lawyer, you can correct me, that circumstantial evidence is often the evidence that convicts somebody of a crime.
2: Uh, Circumstantial evidence can be very uh, indicative of a crime. However, in my case, um, there was just absolutely nothing of who you know where when or how I supposedly uh, gave this information the uh, unauthorized disclosure of classified information uh, no indication of uh, any ability to even do so uh, there was one point in the trial they were constantly saying or uh, alleging that I had retained a document related to operation Merlin But they never produced the document they never even had a copy of the document never even said what was in the document um so yes circumstantial evidence can be uh proof enough however we're talking about beyond a reasonable doubt um they the only proof that they produced during the trial was just the implication that well only one person could have done this and they the whole time was just pointing the finger in my direction Uh, with no real uh, substantive proof to back it up.
0: You write that the truth is that I did not leak any classified information related to CIA operations at James Risen or anyone else, but I am a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. I'd blown the whistle by suing the CIA for discriminating against me when I was an employee there. How did the CIA racially discriminate against you?
2: Um, When I joined the agency, I, again, was all in. I was told that I was going to be treated equally. As I tried to move up in my career, I was not receiving the same opportunities, the same tools to do the job as everyone else. And when I asked, uh, the agency being what it is, had no problem in looking me in the eye, my supervisors looking me in the eye and telling me that I kind of stuck out as a big black guy speaking Farsi. Uh, Which made no sense to me. I had proven myself through years of service, my ability to do things other officers were not able to. I learned Farsi at the agency. So, I mean, my response was, when did you realize I was black and why does that even make a difference? But the answer to that was just deal with it. I'm sorry. I was laughing when you said
0: that. Why didn't you realize I was black? I think that's probably on the application, and you can probably deduce that from the first interview. You write that I'd also attempted to blow the whistle about the dangers of Operation Merlin, not by leaking, but by submitting my warnings to staff members of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Sadly, those warnings were ignored. I'd been forced to accept some disheartening truths that neither blatant discrimination nor a dangerous operation related to weapons of mass destruction were matters of real concern to the powers that be at the the agency, or among the members of Congress charged with the oversight of intelligence matters. So, what do you think are their real concerns?
2: Um, the real concerns is uh, avoiding embarrassment, eh, avoiding uh, any indications of uh, incompetence, um, and that's why the the system that I was allowed to use to blow the whistle was mainly done to it is mainly structured to identify. Um, Whistleblowers uh, for reprisal and retaliation. Um, so, but with the intelligence community, particularly the CIA, um, it was a matter of saving face. And the result of that was my uh, prosecution and uh, through a show trial.
0: So what impact do you think that has on intelligence gathering, on your what would seemingly be your mission and goal, intelligence gathering and the national security of the United States? What does that fear of embarrassment, fear of humiliation, how does that have any impact on intelligence gathering and uh, our national security?
2: I I think, you know, hindsight, based on my experience with the, with the agency, I, I think the fear of embarrassment is such that There will be more of a, and there probably has been more of a push. Again, it's been a while since I've been in the intelligence community, but more of a push to put more effort into uh, defense, uh, defending itself from detractors or um, those who are critical of the agency. I mean, they're able to hide behind a wildly uh, out of bounds classification system or any claims of national security. Uh, and and of course we got politicians putting forth the the efforts that you know any question of anything related to our national security means you're unpatriotic. Um, so and and I think that takes away from the real uh, mission of the CIA, which is intelligence gathering for the pol- for our policymakers, and to do so in a non political way. And I think it becomes political uh it has become political and therefore i, I think the intelligence gathering b- becomes tainted
0: when you say political you mean partisan political uh, politics correct
2: partisan political uh, absolutely i mean normally um, or a lot of times uh, administrations particularly presidents will just step out of the way uh, of the cia um and let them do their thing um and then you don't have the proper oversight i mean when was the last time any politician ran on the, the campaign that you know, they're going to clean up the CIA. I mean, it's been <laughs> decades, if ever. And I, I think the CIA just has a self-protectionist nature about it that skews uh, what its mission should be. You write, even before the trial
0: had begun, I'd known that my prospects weren't good. The world had witnessed the cases of Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, John Kiriakou, and a series of other whistleblowers whose prosecution, some said persecution, had been pursued by President Barack Obama with an eagerness that almost suggested a personal vendetta. To you, what explained Obama's aggressive policy toward whistleblowers? Do you think this was about Obama? Do you think this is a trajectory that the executive branch was going in, that governance was going in, oversight was going in of uh, whistleblowers, or was this just something about the Obama administration?
2: I think it was something about the Obama administration. I think there was a unsort of publicized level of, a, of appeasement that uh obama brought in uh, especially to the establishment um and appeasing you know the department of justice and the intelligence community uh with regard to being uh, vindictive if not if anything having a vendetta with regard to uh whistleblowers uh, and of course as the government government would say leakers um, and it, it just seemed uh, wildly, you know, and especially through the wildly inappropriate use of the the Espionage act, um, it, it just made no sense other than the, I guess maybe with that administration a personal feeling of you know giving back when nothing was asked for, sort of thing.
0: You write that uh, in refusing to plead guilty and instead insisting on my right to go to trial, I knew I was facing an uphill battle, but I could not and would not confess to something I did not do. Now, you were sentenced for three and a half years. Didn't you do two years, eight months or something along those lines?
2: Yeah, a little more than two and a half years.
0: Okay. So in retrospect, do you wish you had taken a plea bargain?
2: Um, I certainly had the time to think about that uh, while sitting in prison, but uh, at no point would that have ever been a consideration. and I as I look back, uh, hindsight being what it is, I never I would not have changed anything or any position that I've had. Uh, it was tough to, to maintain that while I was in prison, but uh, to me, I had to be able to always you know, be able to like who I saw in the mirror. And if had I taken you know a plea or admitted to something that I did not do, um, it would have been difficult just to live with myself.
0: Uh, General Petraeus he took a plea bargain uh, what was it about his would have you liked to have had the exact same kind of plea bargain that he was offered
2: um, in well one no because I never would have pled uh, in that sense but how he was treated was certainly um, again that comparison of the system that persecuted me and the system that just gave him a slap on the wrist in the face of tremendous evidence Um, I I just would have wished an even-handed use of our criminal justice system across the board. And, of course, I mean, he was highly influential, uh, had good contacts within upper levels of government, so I couldn't compete with that. And I think the result is I sat in prison, he pled to, I believe, a misdemeanor, yeah, something you know, like that you know, so. it was a misdemeanor that then got expunged
0: immediately anyway so you're yeah. right how the hell yeah. did it all come to this by the way thank you for using hell in that question so I could plug our show <laughs> <laughs> how the hell did it all come to this I'd grown up as a true believer in the American dream work hard do your duty and stand up for yourself those are the rules of the game so I'd been taught I knew I'd done nothing wrong and I knew that fighting against wrong is what an American hero is supposed to do that's all I knew how to do that's why I was now clinging to hope and continuing to fight unable to comprehend how defending my rights could somehow get me branded as a traitor what does it reveal to you about what america really is when fighting for your rights gets you labeled a traitor
2: well it was as i say in in my book i, I was pursuing you know the american dream uh, for me that's what you were supposed to do that's what i was taught um and then to try to to do that and then eventually end up you know, being brandished a, a traitor, put on trial as such. It it kind of felt like, you know, what is this America? I was just trying to be a part of it like any and everyone else. But I I didn't fit. I I, I wasn't I was in the wrong areas. I, I wasn't the right type of American, you know, basically saying I didn't have the right skin color. Um and it was a nightmare come true for me. Uh, what I believed in so uh, fervently uh, put me in prison, took me out of the country, essentially, uh, as a, as an undesirable, if you will. Uh, so it was um, quite disheartening for me throughout the entire process. So do
0: you think racism, racial prejudice, do you think that can be an obstacle, even stop people of color from contributing to America? Can racism become an obstacle to fighting for or even defending America.
2: Absolutely. Uh, in my instance, uh, racism prevented our you know, uh, a organization tasked with the national defense of this country. It prevented them from using the resources that it readily had available. Um, so you, you you think about in other agencies, I mean, racism, um, this is, you know, wasn't a post-racial America during the Obama administration, and it certainly isn't now. So I mean, it's a fact of America, and being such, I think it would be naive to think that that attitude doesn't impact our ability to protect ourselves, um, you know, and, and, and that needs to change, and it can change as we hopefully uh, address these issues and tackle them head on, I mean, and not be afraid to tackle them. And
0: I hope this question isn't redundant, but I'm trying to get to a bigger point. You write, when you are waiting for your verdict, I was waiting to learn what my country thought of me. What did your guilty verdict tell you about what your country thought of you?
2: It told me that um, my country didn't want me. Um, My book is about a journey of, of going through and my experiences with black America and white America. And America in general. I didn't fit in black America because I wasn't uh, black enough. I didn't do things that were what blacks were supposed to do. In white America, I was where I wasn't belong. I didn't belong because I didn't have um, the, the right skin color, uh, right background, uh, things like that. So the verdict told me that neither America, you know, in America in general, uh, didn't want someone who stood up for himself, who uh, believed in himself, regardless of skin color, and refused to believe the limitations uh, of race uh, and things like that. And it it hurt. It it hurt, especially uh, hearing that first uh, verdict of guilty and then realizing I I was going to prison.
0: I can imagine somebody who was as patriotic, is as patriotic as you are, that this was incredibly disheartening. But have you been able to incorporate your new understanding or your revised understanding or more informed understanding through going through this whole process of what America is? Has that have you do you do you feel better about this situation because you've learned, or do you just feel completely dis, disheartened and disheartened and don't want to even participate?
2: Oh, i uh, through the process, I certainly it felt like I hit rock bottom especially sitting in prison. But after about a month, the letters started coming in uh, of support uh, and, and learning about the efforts that my wife Holly was doing to, to get the word of, uh, out about me and marching to the White House and uh, the books people would send me. That revealed to me that, you know, that America that I believed in was still out there. And maybe I'm sitting in this prison from one aspect of America, but it just in reinforced me my beliefs and that, that there is a, there's, my American dream is still out there. And, I, and I'm going to still pursue it, even though sitting in the desolation of prison, that, that support uplifted me and made me realize that even though I had been sort of betrayed by my country. It wasn't my country that did so. You know, the country I believe in was still out there and, and they made themselves known to me while I was sitting in prison. And that, that has left me just as hopeful as I was uh, growing up as, as a child that, you know, I believe in this country and I wanted to serve my country and I'm going to, everything's going to be good.
0: So do you think there's that just reflected a a disconnect between the American people and the American government? We often hear people who are critical of the United States say, look, I love America. I just hate your government. Do you think that's the difference, the, the dividing line between the people, the America that you love and the America that made you a scapegoat is the people versus some disconnect between the people and the government?
2: Yeah, I, I think there can be a, a disconnect, and I certainly think, through my experience, there was a certain uh, certainly a disconnect uh, between you know the the people and and our government. Uh, and I can speak with regard to my time in the CIA. It gets to the point where you wonder who is the CIA working for? Is it working for itself, or is it working for the people it was, it was created to protect? and I, and i think that happens a lot with government and it ends up working for itself kind of ignoring the will of the people and uh, and that just in, reinforces that disconnect and i think that's something that certainly through voting and other aspects but we need to change i mean you know, the government should be working for the people not you know for its own interests
0: you call the sh- uh, the trial that you had a show trial, which is a reference to authoritarian yeah. government trials that are staged for the edification of the government to justify the punishment of state enemies. They're often associated with trials within the old Soviet Union or the House Un-American Activities Committee McCarthyist anti-communism trials here of the 1950s. So who was the target audience for your show trial?
2: Uh, the intelligence community uh, and anyone who had any interest in the uh, CIA. I mean, it, it was incredible. The CIA put on current and former clandestine case officers. Um, assets that, that we used to do operations uh, were put on the stand. Uh, sources and methods were readily made available, uh, made available in, a, in a public trial. Um, and through all of this, I mean, there was nothing established or proven other than the CIA touting how it conducts operations and how good the CIA is. And with regard to me, the only thing that was proven beyond a reasonable doubt was that I was black because I did not look like anyone else that the CIA put on the stand. So it was most definitely a show trial to you know for the CIA to, if you will, save face.
0: You write, I was absolutely floored when I learned that Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a legendary leader of the South African movement against apartheid, and also had also written a letter about me to the judge presiding over the case, although tutu 's appeal for a fair sentence for me had failed, this gesture by a champion of civil rights from another country helped make up for my disappointment over being disregarded by civil rights leaders for my own land, which is shocking to me. To you, what does it say about civil rights leaders and the U.S. civil rights movement when it doesn't speak up in support and defense of you, but foreign civil rights leaders like Bishop Tutu does? What does that tell you about the state uh, of civil rights leadership in this country today?
2: Uh, that, uh, again, uh, that that whole experience is still um, quite... Uh, painful for me. But I, I think what it says is I mean, it's become so political. I mean, there, there's so many aspects and, and uh, even our civil rights movements in, in a lot of ways are taking things. That's easy. Uh, I live in the area where uh, the Michael Brown shooting happened. You know, the civil rights leaders were coming out of the woodwork uh, to complain, uh, to protest uh, about that. It's easy when someone is laying, you know, the tragedy. I'm not trying to, um, you know, lessen the impact or what happened during that. But it's easy for our civil rights leaders to, uh, take the band, you know, grandstand over a, a dead body uh, someone who has been killed in that tragedy. But why couldn't they even take an interest in looking at what was happening to me? Um, you know, my life was being destroyed, you know, based on the color of my skin. So why did that make a difference? I, I pled, I, I begged for assistance from many civil rights organizations and even, um, politicians at that time and essentially i you know, the phone calls were never answered emails were never answered um and i had one <laughs> uh congressional office told me the best thing to do would be to leave the country jesus
0: Well, that seems like a really great solution to the problem of the U.S. justice system. Just leave. Nice. So you write, there was no dark, shapeless room of despair to fear any longer after you'd figured out that you were going to get out. I'd served black and white America and persecution as a whistleblower without sacrificing my belief in myself. I reflected on the many times when I could have simply given in, surrendered, or accepted the limiting expectations of others, but I'd resisted those temptations. Did you ever get the sense that the goal of prison was to make inmates, not just yourself, but the other inmates around you, to punish them by making them give up on themselves?
2: Yeah, that is the the absolute uh, reason for existence of prison. Um, Any aspect of reform or uh, correction is a misnomer with regards to prison. The only thing that prison does is, the only thing that prison teaches you is how to be in prison. And that's a situation, of course, of stripping you of of your humanhood, of your humanity and your identity. Uh, So prison is is just a, all it is is a desolation uh, warehouse for uh, undesirables as viewed by our, our country.
0: And not only should our listeners check out your book, Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of American Whistleblower. Again, our guest is Jeffrey Sterling. Uh, you also had an article back in September of 2016 called At the Intercept, actually. It was, uh, I was a CIA whistleblower, now I'm a black inmate. Here's how I see American racism, which you wrote while you were in prison. Back then, you wrote, I yeah. do not like prison. Very declarative there. No one should. uh, No one should. It is a strenuous, unceasing effort to cope with the ordeal of being incarcerated at a federal prison. I find myself identifying with the title character from Shakespeare's Richard II when he laments his own effort to adjust to confinement by wondering, I've been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. You are a lawyer. How has prison changed the way you view criminal justice and incarceration?
2: Uh, being in prison and going through this with the criminal justice system, first off with, with the justice system in, in, in general, um, reform is absolutely necessary and needed. Um, the the unequal un, uh, treatment of individuals uh, based on skin color, or uh, especially in my case, with that and the, the aspect of uh, throwing in national security, how that just Um, creates a whole system of the government being able to have its way. Uh, And and, prison reform, uh, that is absolutely crucial. Uh, Prisons are, uh, the way they're run, it's just absolutely pointless. Uh, Talk about recidivism. The system of prisons encourages recidivism. Um, I mean, and just the treatment of individuals. I mean, me, in my case, I had a uh, severe uh, medical uh, issues uh, while I was in prison, and it took the efforts of thousands of people calling the prisons, and even uh, a U.S. senator reaching out to the prison about getting me—you know—through the efforts of my wife, getting me assistance. I mean, why should it be? Why should those steps be necessary to get medical care while you're in prison? So, I, and if I can be an advocate for prison reform, I am definitely going to do that because. It's, and these are the things that, you know, I think a typical American, just they don't see and maybe they don't want to see. But the impact of all of it hits all of us. So we have to address these uncomfortable topics at some point.
0: I want to get to that all of us point uh, before we let you go. Uh, you were talking about this. That, now, we've talked about this with uh, prison reform reform. Uh, critics and analysts who have been on our show, about within prison, the purposeful sorting by skin color. Uh, how much do you think that exacerbates racism outside of prison walls?
2: Um, as I said in that article, it, it was hard for me to figure out, was prison a mirror of the, uh, was I, as I was looking at the TV and seeing the racial issues in the news every day, I mean, what was a reflection of what was prison a reflection of the the outside world, or was it the other way around? Because um, in prison, I mean, it was shocking to me. I know you you hear all the things on um, TV and books about the separations in prison, but I mean, we had a black TV room, white, uh, a, a Hispanic TV room, and even a Native American TV room, and different tables in the cafeteria where. Uh, it was sorted by race. Now, these weren't the official uh, policies of the prisons, but they were certainly encouraged uh, to be followed. And in that sort of small world, if you're keeping up those racial divides, well, what happens when those individuals leave prison? That's what they're used to. That That's essentially what prison teaches them. So that's just going to continue. And I think it becomes too much of a reflection of what's outside those walls. And um, that's just the shocking realities of it and the things that need to change.
0: And you concluded that article by writing, My America is not a prison. For now, I'm confined, this at the time, to the black TV room at the Federal Correction Institution in Englewood, Colorado. When I am free, I don't want to feel that I'm merely going from one prison to another. When you did go free, did you have any feeling akin to going from one prison to another?
2: um no uh and again that that was based on you know my hope um that i that i clung to uh growing up and certainly while in prison um there are the realities the the things that seemed like they were happening uh that you know outside was a a different sort of prison than where i was but that that is not you know i wasn't uh, going to allow myself to uh rest my mind on or satisfy or just get in to that sort of belief or, or that thought process, um, you know, my America is not a prison, and it's it's one for everyone uh, to be treated equally um, and brought together equally. So uh, I prefer to believe in what's better for my country as opposed to aspects that uh, harm it. Um, so you know, coming out, uh, I certainly had that feeling that maybe things won't change, but uh, nothing's going to change if you don't make any effort to change it.
0: We have been speaking with lawyer, whistleblower, and former CIA case officer Jeffrey Sterling, author of Unwanted Spy The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. One last question for you, uh, Jeffrey. By the way, you can follow Jeffrey on Twitter at S underscore unwanted spy. One last question for you, Jeffrey. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. The CIA (laughs) has interfered in the. I know this is all. Always the funnest part, Jeffrey. Uh, the CIA yeah, okay. has uh, interfered in the electoral process in dozens of countries historically. Now we have all these concerns, especially from uh, people like uh, Hillary Clinton, very concerned about Russian meddling in the U- uh, U.S. elections, which people should be concerned about anybody uh, uh, having a problem with anybody interfering with anyone's elections. How hypocritical do you think it is of the United States or of people in the United States to be so upset about uh, other countries interfering when? Our, in our elections when the CIA has interfered in other countries' elections? Oh,
2: from being with the CIA, I think it's an, it, the hypocrisy is incredible. Um, yes, I mean, it, it is and should be a concern about, you know, any country should be concerned about meddling uh, in their elections. Um, and it's astounding. Again, it's a situation where um, people don't want to know what's going on. They don't want to know what the CIA is doing. But the same sort of situation hits home here. We're all up in arms. Well, why don't we treat the world or or act in the world as we want the world to treat us? Um, And then maybe things would be better. But the, the hypocrisy is incredible.
0: Jeffrey, this has been a real pleasure speaking with you this morning. I really appreciate you being on our show. Thank you so much. The best of luck to you and your future. And when this book comes out in uh, paperback, if there's more information or anything, please feel free. If you do some more writing, uh, feel free, and we will have an open invitation to have you back on our show. I truly appreciate our conversation today.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Take care.
0: The future ain't what it used to be. This is Hell. Coming up, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin this week. Jeff stands his ground on outer space. We want to thank listeners who have gone to thisishell.com and clicked on support. When you do go to thisishell.com and click on support, there's a few ways you can support the show. You can help us pay for our web services, including downloading and streaming the show all at our site. You can become a Patreon subscriber and get a free show every week featuring a new monologue by... Me in a classic interview from our 23 year catalog of on air conversations if you subscribe right now you can hear yesterday's Patreon podcast where we talked to Jim Schultz of the Democracy Center back in 2003 and 2004 about Bolivia's gas wars which were the environment from which Evo Morales ended up becoming president of bolivia or you can uh, get a this is hell t-shirt trucker cap tote bag the stainless steel coffee cup or the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive loaded with 25 interviews we've conducted over the past 20 years thanks to everyone who has shown their support over the last several weeks lots of you have donated lots more about merch you too can support this is hell by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support but in our new store setup that we have we don't get the names of the people who actually donated or purchased as quickly as we used to, so we'll be thanking everybody who has been donating over the last several weeks in the very near future. Real quick, listener Svend Sven tagged me on Facebook this week when he shared an image of the This Is Hell tote bag. Svend writes, It didn't occur to me that this tote bag was not the best bag to bring into a crowded downtown mosque for Juma." i.e. Friday religious services, until it was far too late. Awkward. Yeah, uh, that's on you, Sven, not us. But I can tell you, a listener told me they used our This Is Hell tote bag as their carry-on when they visited his home back in India. And he said he got quite a few looks from security guards at every airport that he passed through. Also, I've been told some grocery store employees kind of freak out at our tote bag, especially at Walmart. So use our This Is How tote bag with caution and pride. Even Napoleon had his Watergate. This is hell. Do you have Alex or you have Jeffy on the line? Yes. I, I know Jonah. I know you have Jeffy on the line.
3: In the shadow of the future. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. On Twitter last Saturday morning, an account in Australia self-described as international politics analyst for Modern Bride magazine, with the handle @fuddlemark, posed a question paraphrasing a Billy Bragg lyric from his song, A New England. Fuddlemark asked, apropos of seemingly nothing but the philosophical climate of the times, is it wrong to wish on space hardware? In the song, Billy Bragg avers that it is wrong. He regrets making a wish on a couple of satellites, mistaking them for stars. This may have something to do with what is currently being called a satellite constellation which Elon Musk is putting together to cash in on selling internet service covering the entire planet. Unlike an actual celestial constellation, the stars of which are normally very far apart, light years from each other, the artificial satellites in a satellite constellation can sometimes move in a long train, like a line of kick dancers, like the rockets, and eventually they will inhabit one of two or three orbital shells together, like we imagine electrons around the nucleus of an atom. Nothing like a constellation, really. More like particles from a sneeze. It's like Musk has a cold called SpaceX, and when he sneezes, it's called Starlink, the satellite sneeze. Constellations are just patterns we see from the Earth. The stars making those shapes for us aren't really in any such spatial relationship in a dome of the night sky. A lot of them aren't even stars. They're entire galaxies. This is why when Paul Simon sings These Are the Days of Miracle and Wonder from his Graceland album, and he gets to The way we look to a distant constellation that is dying in a corner of the sky, the thought always crosses my mind, Constellations don't die. Stars die. One star in a constellation might die. It might even go supernova, but that won't affect the rest of the constellation. Dumbbell. Before the Muskrats launches, the Earth had about 5,000 satellites in orbit around it, according to the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs and over 100 million bits of space garbage. Muskie sent up 60 satellites in May and another 60 about a week and a half ago. The total number he's been cleared by the government to send up is 12,000. So he'd be adding more than twice as many as are already up there. But in documents it filed last month, Musch's company, HeadCold, or SpaceX, plans to send up 30,000 more. That's more than three times the number of satellites humanity has ever launched into space in all of history, according to an article by Donna Lu for New Scientist, from which I'm cribbing a lot of this info. I remember seeing the moonless, cloudless night sky for the first time, free of any human-made glare. It was breathtaking how many stars swarmed overhead, not to mention the Milky Way, which is just part of one arm of our galaxy stretching from horizon to horizon. In my lifetime, I've gotten to see such views of the sky several times. I've seen the aurora borealis. I've seen the Perseid meteor shower in the desert. And the Geminids above the 45th parallel, which is an extra cold and not great place to see them, but I loved it. You know who else likes looking at the unobstructed night sky? Astronomers. And they are pissed off about Mushy's satellite sneeze, or satellite shroud, Astronomers say it will interfere with their observations from Earth. And it already has, early Monday morning. Astronomers in Chile, taking one of many pictures they're assembling of the entire southern sky to detect the effects of dark energy, watched a chorus line of 19 of Mush's metal vermin parade through their photo exposure for five minutes. One of their team found it shocking, rather depressing, and... Not cool. Mush's SpaceX program wants to placate the whining stargazers by painting the satellites black. But they'll be using high-gloss paint because matte is too expensive. I made that up. They're probably not going to spring for Vanta Black though, the light-absorbing stuff made of carbon nanotubes that very rich elitist artist Anish Kapoor owns the sole rights to use for art, much to the chagrin of all the other artists in the world. That stuff is expensive. Although, really, it was developed for exactly this type of scientific application. But it would put a little dent in Mush's bottom line. Still, maybe he'll spring for it. Or maybe he'll use artist Stuart Semple's much more reasonably priced Black 2.0, which Semple developed on the heels of his World's Pinkest Pink, which he created and then sold cheaply to anyone who wanted it as long as they weren't super-rich elitist artist Anish Kapoor and promised never to let Anish Kapoor have any. Stuart Semple is nice. It's not just light pollution and space junk pollution that are problems with the Starlink satellite phlegium or collegium or colostomy or whatever, constellation. It's also signal pollution. Even though the satellites will be beaming competitively priced internet at frequencies not heavily used, scientists are worried they'll interfere with radio telescope observations and observations of the microwave cosmic background radiation, which is why Mush and his people are working with a couple of the major U.S.-based radio observatories to try to keep them from raising a stink. But Alan Duffy, the lead scientist at the Royal Institution of Australia, believes the satellite congregation or coagulation will be the death of sensitive observations by microwave radio telescopes, at least those based under the Starlink Shroud. In 1959, the United Nations established its ad hoc committee on the peaceful uses of outer space. We should all be nice in space, they said. We should all share space. We should rescue astronauts in distress. We should all help to identify and divert asteroids and other threatening stray objects. It's like international waters. Space is a commons. We all own space. I would like it to be accepted that we all own the night sky. I would like to see that sky more often. But of course, if the day is ever to come when cutting light pollution to a minimum becomes a public priority, it won't be soon. Public priorities are on the back burner, especially in these glory days of private ownership of everything. In 1967, nations signed the Outer Space Treaty, which bans weapons in outer space, in orbit, on celestial bodies or any kind of space station or satellite. When Reagan started talking about putting an anti-missile shield overhead, concerned citizens of the world had to remind the USA of this treaty. And recently... When diplomatic staff in Cuba started experiencing ill effects from what they believed were sonic attacks, the treaty waivers got ready to waive their treaties again, thinking maybe Russia or China were beaming headaches from the orbiting headache guns or whatever they had up there. That's against the outer space treaty. But apparently there's no agreement keeping wealthy, psychotic, self-aggrandizing robber-baron tycoons from buying up territory and orbital shells above our planet. Of course, mush will be providing internet into the bargain, which no government could justify paying for in these days of austerity for the masses, but excessive prosperity and hilarity for the winning few. I used to joke to my libertarian friends, imagine if we had competing highway systems. That'd be stupid. But if we allowed the market to do everything, that's what we'd have, until one company figured out a way to put the other two or more out of business, and then there'd be thousands of miles of abandoned, desolate pavement cutting across the land. Well, not only does Elon Mushmouth want to octuple the number of satellites already in orbit around us, three other companies, Telesat, OneWeb, and everyone's favorite, Amazon, Amazon have plans to launch their own redundant satellite constipations. So, our future. More garbage in space and more obstacles to seeing the night sky free from light pollution or robber baron pollution the way it should be seen, the way it once inspired awe, speculation, and imaginative storytelling among our ancestors. It's wrong to wish on space hardware, says socialist singer Billy Bragg, and i like to add a well-worn quotation From a somewhat like-minded author from the same cluster of islands, a quotation from his historical novel that seems surprisingly fitted, once again, to the times, as it features guillotines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. That reminds me,
0: uh, remember the story from the early 2000s about how a satellite company wanted to project corporate logo on the moon
3: Yes I do remember that many times yes they talked about it many times they really they, they, I think they assumed at some point everyone would go oh yeah that sounds great
0: <laughs> I like the I think the first rumor was it was going to be Coca-Cola and then the second one which was way better was that it was going to be Taco Bell and I could just yeah. imagine people using a telescope to look up in the moon and they see Taco Bell on the side.
3: I think it should be Dr. Scholes. I think there should be a big foot. (laughs) That'd be nice. It's a big footprint.
0: So, Jeff, before we let you go, can you help me pick the word of the week, a word I read in doing research for the show, a word that a guest used in their writing of which I did not know the definition Mm A word. I had no idea what it meant, forcing me to look it up. Will you help me pick this week's word of the week?
3: I will do that. However, I must say... That I've worn my "This Is Hell" T-shirt and carried my tote bag at the same time, lots of places, and never got a glance. Hmm,
0: hmm. but have you even done...
3: among Koreans in Koreatown who are heavily Christian?
0: And what about when you went into a
3: mosque? Uh, I never really brought it into a mosque. I'm pretty much wearing
0: everything I need. Okay, All right. But if you want to uh, go check out what the reaction would be in a mosque, please carry a GoPro with you. it would be. I will. I will. All right. So here are the choices. Now, if you know the definition of any of these words, uh, you can just say, no, it's not going to be that one because I know the definition. And if you just like one word, I'm not going to tell you the definition until we've determined which word you want it to be for the word of the week. All right. Here's the first one. This is from Wendy Brown last week in her book, Ruins of Neoliberalism. Perdure. 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 P-E-R-D-U-R-E.
3: I used to know what that meant, and I don't now.
0: Hmm. so I'm going to give that a half of a star. Also from no, Wendy no Brown's way. book, aduce, aduce, A-D-D-U-C-E, aduce.
3: See, that sounds, you know, like something about, you know, uh, understanding something, like, oh, uh, uh, like discovering the truth about something. All or discovering-
0: right, so you already know that one. Uh, this is from both Wendy Brown's book, Ruins of Neoliberalism and Franny Noodleman's Fighting for Sleep, Metonymy. Metonymy.
3: Now, this is a this is interesting because this is a this is a language thing. I believe metonymy is the part for the whole, sort sort of like your hand in marriage or something like all that. All right,
0: see, look at you. You're knowing all these words. Okay, this is from really. Kiyanga Yamada <laughs> Taylor uh, from her book Race for Profit. Uh, antipodal. Antipodal.
3: Antipodal. Yep. So it means the other end of something. Oh, look
0: at you. All right. So I think we're so far. We're at perdure. I got one last one for you. This is also from uh, "Race for Profits" by Kianga Yamada Taylor. Uh,
3: abnegation. I vaguely know what that means. Abnegation. I would get it in context, but I'm thinking perdure is much better. But uh, I can't say I know what abnegation. It's like got negation in it.
0: All right, we're going to go with abnegation, but I'll tell people what they both mean. The word of the week this week is going to be abnegation. Thanks to Kianga Yamada Taylor for introducing me to a word I've never heard before. It is the act of renouncing or rejecting something. Abnegation of right. political lawmaking power. Perdure is, uh, let's see, remain in existence throughout a substantial period um, of time. Endure is also another word, but bell music has perdured in Venice throughout five centuries.
3: And Belle and Sebastian have somehow perdured. <laughs> I don't know how. All right. So. After the slamming they got in High Fidelity by Jack Black's character. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, Jeffy, until next week.
3: Uh, what? Oh, that was a fun game show. Can I play next week?
0: Yes, we'll do it every week now. <laughs>
3: uh, All right. What should I
0: do? Stay beautiful. All week. Oh, all right. This is Hell, where we make learning about evil fun. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing today, Alex Jerry, and now Jonah Tomko-Smith. A few hours after our Wednesday show, this is Hell, office hours happen, and this week's are probably, you know, next week's, I should say, uh, on the day before Thanksgiving, are going to be the most festive we've had in a very long time because it is one of the busiest bar nights of the year, Thanksgiving Eve, Wednesday, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West. Devon. I want to thank the many people who showed up this week, including Dave, Anna, Leo, Alex, uh, Shankar, another Dave, Lisa, Johnny, Shankar, Pete, some guy in a suit and a tie who I asked what his name was, but he was on some rant with Pete and Shankar. Also, thanks to Jordan, Elliot, Shelley, Sean, and there was quite a few others, that I, but I didn't eat any dinner, and let's just say I was... Intoxicated Drop by and we'll Give you free show Related books advertising stickers And if you're Interested we now Have all our Merchandise t-shirts Tote bags trucker Caps stainless steel Coffee mugs available At our studio space Above carries where I'm speaking to you From at this moment And all our Merchandise is five Dollars less for People who are our Subscribers on Patreon at Patreon.com slash is hell so if You want to do some overconsuming consuming during The holiday season And buy somebody This is hell stuff you can do that. News that scares the news, this is hell. Join us back here next Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time, as we'll be doing one-hour shows each morning. Monday, we'll talk to Eli Meyerhoff about his book, Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. We're still waiting to confirm Tuesday's guest. We have an interview request out with someone who has a new book on the history of Thanksgiving, and you know that's not going to be a pretty history. Then on Wednesday, we'll have the return of Alyssa Battistoni, who's one of the contributors to the collection, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. So subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hell, and we'll be posting a new Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers streaming live on Friday of next week at 10 a.m. Chicago time and then podcast permanently at our Patreon page shortly after. Listening live is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show. Thanks to Jonah Tomko Smith and thanks to Alex Jerry. I also want to thank Ronaldo Magaldi for helping us with uh, this week's rotten history. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for his moment of truth. Congratulations to Stephen S for winning this for winning Franny Noodleman's book Fighting for Sleep. Uh, By giving us the best answer to this week's question from hell The question was What's keeping you up at night? And Stephen S. said thinking that heliocentrism maybe have been a bad idea. Also, thanks to lawyer whistleblower and former CIA case officer Jeffrey Sterling, author of Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. Thanks to Dan Beaton of the Center for Economic and Policy Research for suggesting a guest that we had on Wednesday's show about uh, Bolivia that was just fa- a fascinating conversation. That was a conversation we had with independent journalist Jacqueline Kovarik, who posted The Nation article, Bolivia's Anti-Editionist, back. Lash is growing thanks to Kianga Yamada Taylor, author of Race for Profit How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership. And if you didn't hear that interview, it is a must listen. And Franny Noodleman's fascinating book, author of Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind in the U.S. Military. You should definitely check that out as well. And this week's Hangover Cure is crumpets there is only one way to get over all of the uh, problems that we've introduced to you on this week's shows that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words everybody's stupid my
2: demon is on my butt uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor, uh. and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell right